You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey, y'all, it's Bridget here. I had the chance to have a really interesting conversation with Big Tables Executive Director, Kevin Finch. Kevin's story is one of transformation and compassion. From preaching the word to critiquing cuisine, he is now on the mission to offer a helping hand to those who serve us daily in the restaurant industry. So sit back, relax, grab yourself your favorite cocktail, and enjoy this very special episode. Kevin, welcome to Served Up. I'm really excited to have you on the show today. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Wonderful. Can you tell me a bit about your background and how you got involved with Big Table? So Big Table is a nonprofit that cares for folks in crisis in the restaurant and hospitality industry. So with that broadest framework, uh, I grew up in a little town in Montana, uh, uh, up in the mountains in Western Montana, and um, have been just someone who has always loved food. And at first it was a quantity rather than quality. I just was, I, I was always hungry uh, to the point that sometimes at the end of the day, before bed for my bedtime snack, my mom would make uh, two boxes of macaroni and cheese and feed them to me. And that would kind of get me through the night. So I've just loved food. To get the context, my dad was the pastor uh, of a little church in that town. And so we would often get invited out dinner on Sundays after church. And <laughs> um, again, I was so hungry that I would embarrass my parents by just eating too much. So my mom started packing peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, two of them, and feeding them to me in the car on the way to dinner to lunch so that I just would eat a normal amount. So food has always been important in my life. Somewhere probably during college, <laughs> And after college, I started collecting restaurant reviews and became that go-to person that you would ask, uh, where should I take my girlfriend to eat? You know, my parents are coming to town. Where should I go? And usually the conversation went something like this. Well, I've not been there because it's too pricey, but I can tell you, you should probably go to this place. You should probably order this thing or that thing. Um, so it was just this love of food has been a part of my life uh, for a long time. So I end up moonlighting as a restaurant critic in starting about 2001. And this is in the inland Northwest. So not a major food city. It's, uh, we're not talking uh, San Francisco or New York or Chicago. This is a, a second or third tier food city. But I'm having a blast. I was an English major. I get to write and I'm getting paid to write about food. So I'd go out and for the first time in my life, I was able to take friends with me and pay for their meals. Uh, it wasn't like, okay, who's going to pick up this check? 
It's like, I got it because I didn't have it. The paper had it or the magazine had it. About five years into writing about the industry, I, what I would describe as my kind of spidey sense went off. And it felt to me like, man, it seems like there's just a whole bunch of people that work in restaurants and hotels that are living right on the edge. And I, I, I wasn't certain of that. It just kind of gradually, as I was spending time talking to chefs and talking to owners and talking to servers and getting to know people in the industry, I thought something's some is something up here. And so about 2006, I started poking around online. At that point, Google was starting to kind of come into its own and you could find stuff online. And what I found was not that it wasn't as bad as I thought. It was 10, 15 times worse in terms of the things that you would pay attention to if you were looking at who's struggling uh, were concentrated in the restaurant and hospitality industry in a way that I'd seen nowhere else in the country. It was um, uh, poverty rates in terms of folks who are working, sometimes two, three jobs, who are still at or below the poverty line. Um, addiction rates in terms of folks who are struggling with substances, uh, broken relationships, uh, stress levels to the point in some cases where folks were having to leave their jobs because the stress levels were so high that they could not function. And their doctors were saying, uh, do you want to live or do you want to work? What's, what's your options here? So all these risk factors kind of, my thought was, oh man, I get all the fun stuff of this. I get to write about the industry, but now I'm feeling guilty. So I'm going to donate to whatever organization is helping folks in the restaurant and hospitality industry. Again, coming from the Northwest, I start looking around the Northwest. I can't find anything in the Northwest. Okay, well, let's look at the West Coast. Eventually, I'm looking at the entire country. And, uh, and again, this is 2006. At that point, I couldn't find a single organization in the nation uh, at a nonprofit level that was organized to care for what I now knew was the largest industry in the country. There wasn't anything. At that point, there were a million and a half nonprofits registered with the IRS. Not a single one of those was caring for the restaurant and hospitality folks. Now, obviously, there were some adjacent services. If, if someone was a single mom struggling in this area, she could get services, but no one had said, here's this industry that's really struggling. Let's focus care there. Um, and I know you uh, have dogs. So I, I, good news for you. There are between 30 and 40,000 nonprofits in the U.S. that are organized to care for household pets. So if your dog gets, if your dog gets sick there's, or there's a crisis, that can help. But that there were thirty to forty thousand to care for pets, and not a single one caring for the largest industry in the nation just blew me away. That is, but, that's yeah, staggering. Yeah, is that? I mean, does that resonate? You've had a long history in the industry. Does anything I've said there kind of not track with what you've experienced? No, I mean you're exactly right. You know, something a bigger, a very big conversation that has been happening, especially since COVID. You know, if you look at many of the other industries, you look right. at banking, for instance. You look at yep. the airline industry. You look at um, anything that's to do around medicine, hospitals. You know, they're very organized in what right. they do. 
and the hospitality industry is very siloed yes. in their efforts. Yeah. And part of that is it's, it's made up of, in a lot of ways, a lot of small business owners. <laughs> they're, they're just trying to stay afloat, keep that bar open, keep their restaurant open. There's, there's not the same kind of clout that you would get as in other industries, but that's the very reason it's the largest industry in the country is because it's, it's kind of pulling together all of those folks from different places. So I'm thinking, oh my gosh, it's a, it, I would describe this as kind of my emperor's new clothes moment where I'm looking and going, isn't anyone else noticing what I'm noticing? And at that point, it really was invisible. And the reason is the industry is good at what it does. This is the hospitality industry. We care for other people. When we come to work, we put a smile on our face. It's probably the most important part of our uniform. And, and our job for however long that shift is, is to care for other people. And if we're doing that job well, why in the world would anyone ever stop to think, oh, maybe this person who's taking care of me is the person that's most in need of help? By definition, folks in the industry have a job, and then they, because they're required to, put that smile on their face and care for other people. So for me, that's the reason why it's been this just incredibly missing component to kind of a safety net in the community. Well, these guys are fine. So, but for me, it was that, that time spent as a restaurant critic that opened my eyes to that. I will out myself that this will then make maybe some sense of why this is. I was a, a pastor for 15 years. So my day job during this time that I'm moonlighting as a restaurant critic is I'm a pastor. But what I found is that uh, anytime I mentioned that to anyone in the industry, no one would talk to me. I could kind of clear a table in about 30 seconds. Um, and I think that suggests uh, negatively on how most Christians are perceived in the restaurant and hospitality industry, that there's um, a lot of judgment there. Um, I had one server say, um, they're the stingiest tippers that ever sit at my table. Uh, they take the tables for too long to study the Bible and they're very demanding. I don't like, I hate Christians. <laughs> and ironically, she herself was a Christian. But as a server, that's not who she wanted at her tables. So whatever that, if that's the true reason or not, anyone that heard that I was a food writer or a restaurant critic that was in the industry, they're like, oh man, tell me about that. You know, where's, where's the best sushi in town? Or right, uh, you've had probably some of those conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, oh, what about this? That was the reaction I got when I was a, when I mentioned I was a food writer, but then Usually it was about five minutes further into the conversation. They'd go, dude, man, you got the best job in the world. You get to write about food <laughs> and you get paid to do it. Yeah. Uh, can you afford to live on that? And I would laugh and I'd say, no, I could barely afford to pay for the food I just ordered. Mm -hmm. And because we're such a work centered culture, the next question would be, oh, what else do you do? What, what's, mm -hmm. your, what's your other job? And I'd say, oh, I'm a pastor. And literally it was like cockroaches when you turn on a light. Uh, everyone would just scatter. And hmm. uh, so I was at a bar in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, uh, one night listening to a band play. And everyone at the table was food service folks or, you know, industry folks. And <laughs> the conversation is going that normal direction. 
They've asked me about food. We're now talking about uh, the new breakfast place that opened down the street by the by the river. And and it occurred to me, gosh, in a moment, they're going to ask me what else I do. And I don't want to be sitting at this table for the rest of this set by myself. <laughs> so so when they asked that question, instead of saying, oh, I'm a pastor, I said, oh, I'm in public relations. And they went, oh, OK, well, what about the what about Syringa and or what about mm-hmm. La Peep or what about um you know, seasons. Tell me which of those places I should be going to. So it was just no break in the conversation. That got me thinking um, in this conversation. And and so when I realized the need, that was a couple months before I started doing some of the research into the industry. Um, I realized that the biggest problem that was going to be in my way if I was going to do something to care for folks in the restaurant and hospitality industry was actually my job title. And so yeah. it, took, it took me two years to get up the guts to, to leave a job with, with a, a pension, uh, good insurance, support. People knew what I was doing. But in the end, that was the choice. I'm going to, yeah. um, if that title is the problem, the need is to care for folks in this industry. Okay, let's get rid of the title. So that's what I did. And that was about 15 years ago. Or 2009 is when we launched Big Table. That's amazing. And, you know, talk about really ministering to folks in a real way, right? right. I mean, you're doing the work. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, Absolutely I, amazing. I feel like um, what I tried to do when I was a pastor was say each week or in, uh, is, do you know how valuable you are? I was trying to communicate to them how valuable that they are, that they were of infinite value. And the folks would show up in church on Sunday and they'd go, ah, thanks. Good. I'll be back next week. Tell me, can you tell me that again? (laughs) And when I got to start to move out into the restaurant hospitality community, I realized that a lot of the folks that are most on the edge, most vulnerable have come from broken families, from lots of pain. The industry in a sense has welcomed them in as a safe place. It's been a family Mm -hmm. for them, all of those pieces but they haven't necessarily had someone in their life that looked at them and said, do you know how wonderful you are, how valuable you are? Instead, people would tell them that they were idiots or that they had ADHD and they'd never amount to anything, um, whatever, whatever that was. And so I went from this group of folks that were quite frankly, fairly well off that would show up on Sunday and dress up. And I would tell them, you know, God really loves you. <laughs> You're so valuable to getting to hang out with all these amazing folks uh, in the industry who are a little more pirate ship-esque, mm-hmm. but to get to tell them, do you know how valuable you are? Do you know how much you're worth? Sometimes I was the first person in years that had even stopped to have that conversation with them. And that's one of the joys of what we do at Big Table is our care is focused on relationships. We help in the crisis situation, but mm-hmm. that's really just um, the ticket to entry to build a relationship where we can kind of build capacity into their life long term. And a lot of that is telling them they're worth something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. Can you share your understanding of the challenges that are faced by the restaurant and hospitality workers that are really are in crisis? And how do you think that Big Table can address these challenges mm-hmm. effectively? Well, I would say that um, 
it, and when you look at the statistics nationally, and this isn't just the restaurant hospitality industry, but nationally, staggering how many folks in this country, given the relative wealth that we have in the U.S. compared to other countries, how many folks are, if, if they have a, a $500 unexpected expense in the course of any given month, that, that they don't have the money to cover $500 that they weren't planning on. That puts them into crisis. If their car breaks down, if, there's, if they need an emergency root canal, if their rent, I mean, I'm sure that a lot of listeners, wherever that, uh, are probably dealing with much higher rents now <laughs> than they were just a year or two ago. If your job, you don't, you don't get to go to your job and say, oh, by the way, my rent just went up 300 bucks or 500 bucks. Can I, can you just give me a raise to cover that? That's just not the way things work. The statistically, and this is, this was a number that just focused specifically on restaurant and hospital, uh, just the restaurant side of restaurant and hospitality workers. And I'm not sure who all was in that, but it was a study that said 43% of those in the industry actually live below the line that economists say are needed just to make ends meet. This is not any extra. This is just cover my bills. 43% are below that line. So when you think about that, if that's, and that's double the next closest industry, that percentage. So if you think about that, our folks who are spending their days loving on and caring for other people, when they go home and look at the bank account, they go, I just, I just can't do this. That the stress that comes with that, the anxiety that comes with that, the conflict, I mean, one of the things that I think uh, one of the top three things that folks fight about in a marriage <laughs> is always going to be money. I think it's sex, money, and finance, or and uh, and in-laws would be the the top three. <laughs> but if you've got a whole industry that's just barely making it from paycheck to paycheck, or not making it to paycheck, that just has a cascading effect in the rest of their lives. It just feels like. If we're going to, and from a big table standpoint, when we get a referral from someone that's in crisis, the first thing we do is sit down with them. And I can tell you about the referral process because it's really cool. But what our first thing to do is what's the thing that's causing you the most anxiety or stress right now? Let's see if we can do something about that. And it may not be the referral may have come in that this family or this person is about to get evicted because they can't pay their rent. But rather than us go, okay, so this is a housing issue. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to sit down with them and say, over a cup of coffee, out and you know, not come to our office and sit behind, sit across the desk from us. No, let's go to a coffee shop, buy you a cup of coffee, let's talk. What's going on in your life? And then ask that question: What's the biggest stressor? And and in some cases, it's not what the person who referred them to Big Table thought was the issue. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm going to get evicted. I never should have signed that apartment lease. I don't, <laughs> I never had, I've never had the money for that. Um, and I've got a buddy who I can sleep on their couch for a, a month or so to, while I get things straight. My biggest stressor right now is that I can't afford to pay my phone bill. And if I can't pay my phone bill, my employer can't get a hold of me. I can't talk to my kid and pick them up after school. Could you pay my phone bill? That care coordinator right then can say, let's walk around the corner to the Verizon store or to the T-Mobile store or wherever we're going. Let's pay that bill. So it's meeting that immediate crisis, whatever that is. Um, 
And then it's, let's have another cup of coffee in two weeks. Let, let me check in. Because the deeper issue is lack of community. And I think an, ironic because we're the industry that creates community for everyone else. Uh, and sometimes it's that no one is just seeing us in the industry and going, are you okay? And obviously you've got good friends who are going to ask you that question. But most likely those good friends who are going to ask you that question are in the same boat you're in. <laughs> yeah, this is so true. Can you talk about the referral process and what does that look like? Yeah. Well, so, and this will, the framework for this is think um, back to when I was a pastor, there's two kind of basic models, I think, and almost every nonprofit in the country functions on a, what I would describe as a hotline model, where it's the person in need of help. If I'm in need of help, I'm going to be the one going to that agency, going to that church, asking for help. And when I go in that door, my goal, because I know that there's a, I'm, and probably literally there's a line of people that I'm waiting in. I know every other person in that line needs help too and wants help. So my goal in a hotline model is to my, make myself look like the biggest disaster I can be so that I get to the front of the line. I'm more screwed up than anybody else in this line so that I can get the help, which is horrible. So now we're telling these people whose lives are already shattered. Now you have to make yourself look like an idiot, uh, that you can't handle your life, that you don't know how to do it, just to get help. Um, almost every nonprofit, whether that's a form that you have to fill out or this or that, that's the model. For us, we said, could we make this a referral model? So Bridget, you as someone in the industry, you're working next to someone, you know about Big Table, you notice that they're struggling, you would take five minutes on our website to fill out a little form that says, here's who I am, my friend, this is the issue. I think it's their child has got some medical bills that they didn't know about. This is what's going on. What we would do then in this referral model is call you back first and say, thanks for the referral. Is there anything else we should know about your friend? And so that adds a little, well, you know, actually, yeah, the other thing that's going on, I didn't mention that when I filled out the form is that her mom just died. And She's just really struggling with grief. And gosh, it would be great if in addition to this medical crisis, she had someone to talk to, a therapist or something long-term. Great, good. Then uh, we'd probably say to you, how does she best respond? Is she, a is she a text? Should we call her? Should we give her a phone call? Should we text her, email? What's the best way to get a hold of her? And then we'd do that. And if you gave us permission, we'd say, it's not like this cold call out of the blue. We'd say, hey, Bridget mentioned you're going through a tough time. Can we buy you a cup of coffee and see if there's something we can do? Because that's what we do as an organization. We support folks in our industry. That is completely different than this person in crisis saying, I have to prove that I'm, everything's messed up. So it, what it does is it opens the opportunity for more of a friendship, mentoring relationship from the moment we sit down with them, tell us, tell me your story. What's going on? Okay, let's, let's work on that. So I, if I could snap my fingers and say every nonprofit in the country move to a referral model tomorrow, I would do it because I think it completely changes power dynamics between the caregiver and the person receiving care. 
it evens that out way more than this. I've got all the power. I've got all the resources mm-hmm. Prove to me that I should give them to you. Right. And, it's a very thoughtful yeah. way of supporting someone. Yeah. And in our model, because we think relationships are what changes people's lives long-term, it makes the possibility of relationship much more possible because we're going to be someone that they want to spend time with, as opposed to someone that kicks up feelings of inadequacy. Oh man, that's the person that I had to hit when I was at my lowest point and they saw everything and they had, so we don't ask for pay stubs. Um, (laughs) We don't ask for them to prove that they're in crisis instead, because you made that referral because you know, that person, that's the, that's, that's the vouching we need. Oh, okay, great. And there've probably been over 15 years of doing this. There've probably been five or six times we've been taken for a ride by someone who is just working the system. Yeah. But five or six out of the thousands upon thousands of people that we've cared for, that's amazing. Yeah, it really is. It's incredible work. Can you describe any experiences you've had working with um, the marginalized and really vulnerable populations? And how do you ensure that your work is culturally sensitive and inclusive? Yeah. Well, and again, I think um, our industry is one of the most diverse industries in in the nation. Uh, And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is it's been a safe place. It's been kind of the the land of misfit toys in a lot of way. People that don't fit in a in a desk job uh, that that don't you mentioned banking that would never make it as a banker sitting behind a desk (laughs) can work behind a bar or can work in a kitchen. And so you get this wonderful mix of diversity, uh, whether that's ethnically, you name it, we got it. (laughs) Um, Our model is just designed because it's a listen first rather than a, Hey, we've got this resource for you. Whoever, whoever shows up, whoever we're sitting across the table from, our care coordinators are trained to just go, tell me what's going on in your life. So I think that um, certainly there's places for diversity training and all this and initiatives. If we just got back to basic relationships, the way uh, they work at the just root level, it actually solves a lot of those questions. Um, not by, oh, because we're, we're totally woke or we're this or we're that word. No, it's, just we care about people. And who's the person I'm carrying across the table from right now? Well, that's wonderful. Um, what strategies What strategies would you employ to identify the restaurant and hospitality workers who may be in crisis? And when you have those conversations are not really giving you maybe the full picture right? or have <laughs> you know, children at risk. Let's right. say, you know, what, what strategies you put yeah. in place, kind of those bumpers, right? To kind of extend those conversations and pull out yeah. what's really needed. Yeah. So, uh, I, I, and I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but it's asking questions. It's, so it's, it's paying attention to their life um, rather than coming in with a checklist. But what we do uh, early on, there was a uh, there was a restaurant owner, and obviously one of the first things we do is we're building relationships with owners, with managers, with um, 
And, and another group of people that I would call the mamas and the papas of the industry, typically in any restaurant, any bar, any hotel, there's a mama or a papa that kind of knows what's happening in everybody's life and everyone kind of trusts and just, and a lot of times it's not a manager. It's just someone on the staff um, that, that just seems to know that um, if we can connect to that person or those people, they then become the ones who put in the referrals and catch the folks that are falling through the cracks. That just becomes this great model in terms of doing that. But then from our standpoint, so when we're building relationships, the other thing is I think a lot of nonprofits end up, there's this tent, there ends up being this tension between uh, caring for the folks, that dishwasher or that barback or whoever's, whoever's kind of at the bottom of the pile and the, the owner, like, well, it's the owner's fault, but they're doing it. We get to, we get to care for everybody. And intentionally, when we formed Big Table, we organized as a religious nonprofit, not because we wanted to proselytize, but because as a religious nonprofit, instead of a social service nonprofit, we don't have to means test. We can care for um, a bartenders that's making very good money the same way we would care for um, a a dishwasher who might not be. If they need to get into counseling, we can help with that. We can care for an owner that's going through a divorce the same way we would care for a server who can't afford um, you know, basic supplies to get their kid to school. Um, so we don't have to go into the situation and go, okay, we can only help you because you don't make enough money. It's like, who in the industry is, who's hurting? If that owner goes down uh, because of depression or that you've got a whole restaurant or bar that now is unemployed. So if we can care for that one person, that impacts that whole ecosystem. Where I was trying to go with your, in answer to your question was this though, fairly early on, we got, uh, we had a, an owner of a restaurant go. One of the reasons I support big table and give to big table is because I'm trying to run a business. I care for my employees but I can't be a counselor. I can't, I can't do all of the stuff. I kind of keep the doors open. Big table cares for those folks. And when I, I sometimes forget what's going on in their lives, big table doesn't forget. Big table remembers. He said that word. And that was right at the point where care was starting to blow up. We were still in just one city, but we were to the point where I was afraid that we were starting to lose people that, Referrals were coming in through texts, through emails, through personal conversations. So I went to a friend of mine who was a programmer and I said, can you help us design a database that would allow us to track every interaction, every referral that comes in the door? And we literally have that database now and it's called Remember after that restaurant owner who said Big Table Remembers. So our database is called Remember. And in that database, we went through and said, and this just goes back to your question of how do you how do you suss out what other things might be at issue in a person's life? We went through and thought, because at this point we've got several years of data, we've got several years of caring caring for people. What are the different areas in a person's life that can be in crisis? And so that's work life, home life, uh, medical, emotional health, um, finances, and we listed out all of those categories, and then put them into on a spectrum because rarely is it just uh, binary, good or bad. It's like, this is really in crisis. This is okay. 
I'm doing fine in this area. So we've got that. We call those, we've got eight different categories. We call those trajectories of transformation in a person's life. And so when that care coordinator sits down at that first meeting with someone who's been referred to Big Table, they're not whipping out this sheet and saying, let me score you on how you're doing in these areas. But in their head, they're thinking, tell me about work. How's work going? Tell me what home's like. What are the relationships like in your life right now? So they're asking questions and they would get to that question of, oh, my kid, here's what's going on with my kid. Or, oh, there is this, out, this underlying medical condition that's, that's not allowing me to work as much as I'd like to work or whatever those issues are. Just in asking questions with some structure behind it, we can get at that. So I hope that answered your question. Long answer for a short yeah, question. It absolutely does. Because I think that a lot of folks come like with one you know, uh, almost on surface, but there mm-hmm. might be a lot behind oh, yeah. that. So that's amazing. You have something, you know, that's a, a structure and a plan when you go in. Well, and um, we average, I mean, sometimes it really is something that's just an immediate crisis and then they're fine. And mm-hmm. so for that person, we'd meet, we'd help meet that crisis need. And then we may, you know, check in with them by text a couple of weeks later, they're good. But we average in a, with a care recipient, uh, six or seven contacts with every person. So if that's the average, there's some folks, literally there's folks that we've been supporting and kind of <laughs> for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so the goal is always that next conversation uh, sure. in, until there's a point. So that allows us to surface those things that may not be on the surface. Once that immediate crisis is dealt with, well, here's actually an issue that I want to work on. Okay, mm-hmm. let's do it. All right. That's wonderful. What are the goals of Big Table? Like, what do you want to see in the next five years? My hope, the the challenge for me is there's so much need in our industry that I would love to grow to the point where we've got care teams in more cities. Mm. Our, Our relational model doesn't scale nationally. It's not like we can just go, okay, start putting in referrals anywhere in the country. Because we can't sit down eyeball to eyeball over that cup of coffee with them, build the relationship that's needed for them to care. So currently we have care teams in four cities in the country, in San Diego, in Nashville, Colorado Springs just recently opened. Um, and I think um, there's a, the USBG's next conference is going to be Denver. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then um, Spokane, where we started. My dream would be, whether that's five years or 10 years, is to double or triple our footprint in terms of the number of cities that we're in so that more of the folks that are in our industry that are struggling have a place to go to. Um, Mm -hmm. And there are some other amazing nonprofits. USBG, one of them helps specifically. Um, The Giving Kitchen based in Atlanta has a national footprint because their model is crisis care only, not the relational piece. Mm -hmm. So they can scale nationally and and um, Southern Smoke um, Core, which children of restaurant workers. There's some amazing other organizations that have sprung up and are doing amazing work that we partner with. Our model is unique and kind of hands on the ground, boots on the ground. So that would be my dream in terms of the next five years, is to get that kind of care into more cities. And where can our listeners find Big Table? Like, ah. what if they want to get involved? Sure. Or they or they need Big Table? Right. Exactly. 
Well, if if you happen to be in any of the cities where we currently exist, uh, that's easy. Uh, you can go to our website, uh, which is big-table.com. Uh, if you are if you are a listener who's not in a city that Big Table currently exists, there's a button on our main page on the website that says "Bring Big Table to Your Community," and one of the main ways we figure out what, where the next cities we're going to be is, are there people locally that say, please come? That's what makes the difference as opposed to, oh, we should be there. Um, right. No, right. where do people want us to be? So that's an easy way. On our website, there's also, if they want to get involved, we have a, a whole page that talks about, we call it how to care while eating and sleeping, which is just when you're out in the hospitality industry, here are the simple things that you can begin to do tomorrow to, um, to let those people know that they're cared for. Um, and there's an amazing number of things, and it doesn't take a lot of time. They're really fascinating, including one thing we call an unexpected 20 envelope. Uh, and it's a little tip size envelope. And on the front, it basically, it just, it's, what you do is you put a $20 bill in there when you're in a restaurant, when you're in a hotel or a bar, you look for the person that's invisible that no one else is noticing. Or you look for the person that the table next to you just jumped down their throat. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when you're leaving, you just walk up to them and hand them that envelope and just say, make sure you look inside. There's 20 bucks inside. It's not a tip. It's a gift. And the difference between a tip which is a transaction. Mm -hmm. I served you well, so you're acknowledging my service and a gift. You noticed me and you went out of your way to let me know that you saw me. It just blows people away. But more important for me from a big table standpoint is it takes some of those folks that are crappy customers and makes them see the people that have been serving them that they've missed all these years. Yeah. Once you've got that in your wallet or your purse, you start to go, oh, I wonder what's going on in their life. Mm -hmm. So um, I love those. People can get those on our website or there's actually we've got a PDF on there that you can print out and um, just build them at home. They're real easy to build. Or if you've got kids, have fun with them. Kids love doing it. If you've got kids or grandkids, you get to go, OK, you're going to decide who we're giving this to. <laughs> they love it. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, I want to thank you, Kevin, for being on Served Up today. Sure. It's really been enlightening. And I think that our listeners are going to be going on your website to learn more and to become active. And so what I'd like is just to wish you uh, some great health and a lot of Thanks. peace, Kevin. Thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. Delighted to be here. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers! <laughs>